Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Larry Loftus will join us to discuss The Princess Spy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, when one thinks of spies, one may not think of someone like Aileen Griffith. What is her story and how did she become a spy? Joining us today to discuss this very fascinating tale is Mr. Larry Loftus. Mr. Loftus is the USA Today and best-selling author of spy thrillers, Codename Lee's, and Into the Lion's Mouth. He has the new book entitled The Princess Spy, The True Story of World War II Spy Aileen Griffith, Countess of Romanus. And Mr. Loftus, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. How did you become interested in the story of Aileen Griffith? Well, normally I find my spies, this is my third nonfiction spy story, espionage story about the World War II spies. And I typically find them as I'm tracing through files or archives or books and, and I find a name and I chase it down. And But this one, somebody had mentioned to me her name and said, basically, you know, I, I don't know if half the stuff that I read about her is true, but if half is true, it's a great story. Go chase it down. You know, do your thing. And my thing is to go to the National Archives. That's where all the dead bodies are buried. And so I, I pull all the files. You know, the OSS files are all at, at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. So I was there four days, uh, open to close, pouring through not only Aileen's files, but everybody that was in the Madrid office where she was, her spy master who was in Washington. You know, you get all the juicy details that are not public because they're buried. You know, they're buried there. So anyway, but that that's how I found out about her and then started digging from there. Have new information come out about uh, her period during that time? Well, what always happens, this is true for all spies, my, my other two as well. When a spy joins the OSS or, or Popoff joins MI6 or Odette Samson joins SOA, they sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. They have to swear that they will keep all of this secret, what they're about to do. And the countries are very serious about that. England's uh, Official Secrets Act was ironclad. That was why Ian Fleming could never say where his bond, you know, inspiration came from because it was all classified. So and that stuff is not declassified until 30, 40 years later. So all during that interim, these spies can't say anything about what they did. And when the information is declassified, there's not a big announcement. It's not going to hit the TV with, hey, look, we just dumped 13 boxes over to the National Archives, everybody go check them out. I mean, there's there's no announcement, so no one knows. So unless you happen to have a particular person that you want to find out about and go to the National Archives, you won't even know that that information exists. Aileen, though, I mean, she wasn't shy about sharing that herself. She penned her own stories about that period. Did you find what she had said about her period of involvement matched with the record that you investigated? 
No. And in fact, it's part of the reason I wrote the book. She wrote a number of books and she did a couple of nonfiction books, one about the history of Pascal at this, this finca that she had rest, uh, restored. And she wrote that 24 years before she did her first espionage book. But the three memoirs that she does, those are historical fiction. I mean, the overlying theme is true. She was a spy. She did go to Spain. And some of it's pretty benign. But all of the there are nine murders. She makes up eight of them. I mean, there's she's got two major operations. She made up one of them. So I had to figure out from the National Archives what was true and what, what wasn't. And most of the Alfred Hitchcock things were all made up, except for one. There was one murder that is in the book, and it is an Alfred Hitchcock murder. And um, I know that it's true because her partner in the coding room was named Robert Dunev. And of course, he's dead. Aileen's dead. All the principals are dead. But Robert Dunev's sons are still alive. Michael and Peter, one's still in Spain, one's in the U.S. So I contacted them and they said, look, our father wrote a memoir about his time in the war, mentions Aileen. Um, Do you want it? I said, sure. So they sent it to me. It was never published. It was strictly for the family, just so he felt before I die, I want my kids to know what I did during the war. So he explains what he did as a spy. He was Aileen's partner in the coding room obviously worked with her. And there was a line in there that really jumped out at me. And the line was, which reminds me of the night that I removed the dead body from Aileen's apartment. (laughs) That that confirmed that that murder was absolutely true. So that one's in the book. Those stories, there's another one, uh, Edmundo LaSalle was her sort of partner when she went out at night. And his daughter and son-in-law published a book about Edmundo's time. So I'm getting the people around her as well on top of the archive files of Aileen's files and everybody in the office. So I, I was able to get a full picture of what actually happened. There, there was another that she mentioned in a report, her last report she filed on July 15, 1945, and it was a very grisly murder. And she mentions her code name was Butch. And she mentions to her supervisor that uh, in a report that there was this murder of this gentleman who was dealing with the Gestapo, and he was taken out. And then two more people were slated to follow, to be executed, with five more to follow them. And this is in a a report. But my editor said, ah, that's too much. We have enough already in there. Take it out. Let's take it out. So he told me to take that part out. But there's plenty of action, plenty of action in there, believe me. So who was the Aileen Griffith that you discovered? How did she get involved in the whole spy business? So she's a small town girl. She's from Pearl River, New York, which is just a hamlet just outside of Manhattan. It's a Rockwell town, you know, the one the one stoplight, one barbershop, one grocery store. And that's her life. Went to the same school her entire life. She goes to college, graduates, and, and then she's looking for a job. She's 22, young, beautiful woman. She She couldn't really find anything. She wants to join the war because her brothers have joined the war and she wants to help the war effort. But what's she going to do? She's 22. She's not a soldier or a sailor. So she gets a job in Manhattan as a model. She's very beautiful. And it's Hattie Carnegie, which is like the top modeling agency. Lucille Ball had started there. But she's not really happy because she doesn't want to model. She wants to get into the war. So she goes, she's invited to this dinner party. And it was a blind date setup. And the guy that is to be her blind date is a guy named Frank Ryan. And Ryan, little did she know, was an OSS operative. He was actually like a spy master operating out of D.C. He had been overseas. She was excited to hear that some guy that was joining her for dinner had been overseas. And he starts talking to her at dinner. So do you want to be a famous model? Oh, no, I want to get into the war. Really? Why? 
So she tells him, and then he says, do you speak any foreign languages? And he says, she says, well, I speak Spanish, a little bit of French. And he says, okay. So he interviews her through the night, and she has no idea. She thinks it's just curiosity. So he says, well, look, if you get a call from a guy named Mr. Tomlinson, you know, talk to him. He might be able to help you get something going, uh, you know, where you can get involved in the war to help. That's all he says. So two weeks later, this guy calls, tells her to meet him at the Biltmore Hotel, she does. Well, they send her off to the farm, which, and she has no idea what it's about. The farm is a hundred acre complex outside of DC where the OSS trains their operatives. We had borrowed the system that the British had used in training operatives. So she learns how to use all the guns, the rifles, machine guns. She learns she fires a Tommy gun. She learns how to fight with a knife. She learns how to make a dagger with a knife. She, she is the female version of James Bond. In fact, the, the guy that trains her how to fight with a knife is the same guy that trained Popoff from my first book, Into the Lion's Mouth, which was about the spy that Fleming based James Bond on, Dusko Popoff. The same guy that trained Popoff, William Fairbairn, trained her because he was the father of hand-to-hand -hand combat. He was the famous guy that invented this, basically, a dagger to, you know, to take people out, to take sentries out. And that's who trained her. So she got the same training. It's three weeks intensive training with all of that, as well as she learned coding too. But she was a trained killer, even though she looked, she was this beautiful model. When the OSS decides they would weed people out, when you went to the training, if you, if they felt there was any weakness in your game, it, you, if you talked in your sleep, you know, they recorded you, they put microphones by your bed. If you talked in your sleep, boom, you're gone. You're a risk. So they would weed people out. So if you make it through like Popoff did, like she did, then you're, you know, you're going to be a spy. They're going to put you in a very important position and she, of course, goes to Madrid, which is the hub of espionage, because Spain was neutral. And so she's in the hub of espionage in Madrid. Was her case common? No. In fact, in almost no one, basically, there's no sign up. There's no sign up <laughs> she, to, to become a spy. I mean, spies are selectively recruited. That's true across the board. It's a situation where you're at a dinner party and someone that is a spy master that's recruiting likes what they see in you and they start digging, they start investigating. The same was true with Popoff. The same was true with Sansom in my second book, Codename Lease. They're recruited kind of on the sly where, where the person says, hey, well, come to this. Let's talk to me more. Why do you want to do this? And what skills do you have? And then they test them a little. And then if they feel like they're potential, they put them through the training. Going through all the archives, looking at the information that was out there, did anything just pop out at you while you were researching this that made you just go, I can't believe this happened? Well, there were a couple of things. I mean, number one, just the clean while she starts as a coder, she goes in there and she works for about a year in the Madrid office coding and decoding because information would come in for, through the French resistance. It would come into Spain to Madrid and it'd be about German troop movements or panzer movements. And she's got to decode it and then recode it back out so that it goes to people like General Patton or someone out in the field, a general out in the field, uh, Montgomery, let's say, and then they could counter it or we would go bomb it. So that's what she's sort of doing during the day. And then during the night, she's going out. Later, they, they have her going out to do sort of undercover work to infiltrate German circles and, and restaurants and bullfights and flamenco parties, et cetera, et cetera. But what jumped out at me is she was a very good agent, field agent. She was a very good agent. She filed 59 reports, which is far more than any other agent in Madrid. And I'm pretty sure it was more than all of the other agents in Madrid combined. 59 reports. That's a lot. She was very active. 
So that was a little bit surprising to me that she was this so aggressive. And she, she had sub-agents. You have to really be trusted if you're going to get sub-agents because they're trusting you to train them. So she has sub-agents. Some of them were paid. One of them she has in a file, look, we need to pay column, code name, because this is dangerous work she's doing, so let's pay her. And they agree. OSS agrees. That was a little bit surprising. And then, of course, you know, she's followed at night, which didn't surprise me. And you have a murder in there. And then the murder at the end, which she, she puts in a report, shocked me because I had no idea who that person was. But it was this famous kind of semi-famous Gestapo guy. So you find these little nuggets as you go along. It's like going on an Easter egg hunt. You find a lot of rocks. You have to throw the rocks out, and then you find the eggs. But, you know, in my case, they're nuggets of gold of something that happened. And it's not necessarily with her. It could have been her partner. could have been something they did together, something that happened at a van or at a night. could be something that happened to a German that she was investigating, like Gloria von Furstenberg or Hans Lazar or suspects. You know, there was an Austrian suspect, Prince uh, Hohenlohe, very famous family in Austria and Germany that she was investigating because we thought they might be Nazi collaborators. So there are gold nuggets buried everywhere. For anyone going through experience like that, it must be difficult transitioning back to the period after the war. Well, there was actually, and this is what most people don't know, there was, there's some seminal research in the book because when the war ends, President Truman decides that we don't need foreign intelligence anymore. So he closes down the OSS on August 15th. The people in Madrid had to be out of Madrid on August 15, 1945. Well, the, the, our intelligence community said, are you crazy? We, we have to have intelligence. I mean, number one, what are we going to do with all these files, all these intelligence files, where there were thousands of, of, you know, thousands of boxes of worth of stuff. So the intelligence community from the Allies, and it was the OSS, had uh, William Donovan, the BSC had British Security Co uh, Coordination, which was the MI British MI6 operating in America and Canada, William Stevenson's his name, and then the SOE chief, special operations executive, which was kind of a sabotage spy outfit that the British had. Charles Hambro was their head. So the heads all get together and they form an entity. They form, they quietly form an entity. Two weeks after the OSS folds, the entity is called the British American Canadian Corporation, named after those three people. Hambro's the British, Donovan's the American, and the Canadian is Stevenson. And I can tell you this as a lawyer, they formed it in Panama. And the only reason that you form an entity, a corporation in Panama, is to hide it, which they did. But it was headquartered in New York. And who, would, who did they pick to run it? None other than Frank Ryan, Aileen's boss, you know, the guy that recruited her, who has been an OSS guy from the beginning in Washington. So he's tapped to run it. And then who does he tap to help? Well, he taps Aileen to open the Madrid office. He taps another OSS person to run the uh, Paris office and another one to run the Zurich office and around the country, around the world. So that agency is very mysterious in that that is kind of the bridge, appears to be the bridge between the OSS and the CIA, because the CIA doesn't start for two years later in September of 47. So that bridge entity is the BACC, which later changed its name to the World Commerce Corporation. And this is in the New York Times in the book I, I, I show. So, you know, I figure people might want to see it. The New York Times article that names all the people, but they have no idea that all these people are OSS and British intelligence people, every single person. The company's supposed to be doing international trade, and it did do international trade, but every single person involved was an intelligence person. John Pepper, who I mentioned was an MI6 guy in my first book, that Popoff dealt with, all those people involved in this entity 
And then when the CIA is formed, it's quietly folded, even though it was very profitable. So that appears to be the bridge. So anyway, so Eileen opens the Madrid office. Then Frank Ryan sends her to Paris to open the Paris office. He's about to send her to Zurich to open the Zurich office. And then she said, look, Frank, I love you. I love my job, but I want to get married. You know, I've fallen in love with Luis Figueroa and, and, and we want to get married. So I have to quit. So she does. She quits. And then uh, later she's recruited by the CIA because one of her colleagues was none other than William Casey, who, if that name sounds familiar, he was Ronald Reagan's CIA director. Well, she knew him from the OSS days. So he basically calls to say, look, I know I hear you guys are going to Paris. You're going to Zurich, wherever. When you're there, can you talk to somebody? Can, can you find something out? And so he would give her little assignments. This is now your third book, that period. And how do you think her story adds to the tapestry of that period? Well, it was an incredible Spain and Portugal are both unique because they're, there's only four countries neutral in the war. I mean, you got Spain, Portugal, Turkey and Sweden. But the two real hubs of espionage are Portugal and Spain. And Spain's the most important of the two. And Madrid is the hub. And so you have all the spies from all of the countries are there. Popov had said it and knew it and his German he was a British double agent, so his case officer told him, look, Madrid is swarming with Gestapo people. There's like 400 people on the payroll, informants, Gestapo that are here, could be a bellman, could be a waiter, could be anybody. It gives you a sense of the intrigue going on there. And it leans followed at night sometimes. She doesn't know who it is, and I won't spoil it. It's in the book. <laughs> You'll find out who's. she's followed multiple times. As I mentioned, there's a murder in the book that's very strange because it happens in her bed when she comes home and sees the dead body. So you have a lot of kind of Alfred Hitchcock-type <laughs> things going on. You know, all the while you have a romance underneath there, and that's part of the real life. I mean, people do fall in love, but she was beautiful. So in, in the story, there's actually four – she has four suitors. She lands in Madrid, and a famous bullfighter, Juanito Belmonte, falls in love with her and sends her flowers and chocolates. And she's not really romantically interested, but she knows he can open any door. He can introduce any person. He's a celebrity. So she goes out at night with him. Another guy falls in love, an OSS guy who appears to be that she trained with at the farm, who appears to be maybe a double agent. We're not quite sure. He's a very mysterious guy. The OSS doesn't really trust him, so that plays out. But he, he falls in love with her, uh, gives her a ring, visits her in Madrid. And then you've got a third guy. She, Elaine was arrested on an assignment and thrown in jail in Malaga, and she has to be bailed out. So an American consul named Barnaby Conrad, young man, comes to bail her out. Well, he's smitten with her, so he, he wants to court her. And then the, finally you have number four, which is Luis Figueroa who's Spanish, and he's the one that she eventually falls in love with. So he's there, too, vying for her attention, and she has no idea who he is. She doesn't know that he's a count. She doesn't know that his family's famous. His grandfather was the prime minister of Spain three times, was King Alfonso's principal advisor. The family's very wealthy. The New York Times reported that they were the fifth, he was the fifth wealthiest man in Spain. So all she knows is he's this handsome guy that's nice to me that speaks perfect English. And so later she finds out because his name was Figueroa and you don't know titles. We don't know what the titles mean as Americans. So she doesn't know what the count of the Roman owns means. He's Luis Figueroa. So anyway, you have all of those romance things going through the story. And then, of course, at the end, it starts to come to a head because Ryan wants her to really get active 
with his pseudo, we're not sure, espionage company transition to the CIA, and she wants to get married. And she can't tell Louise any of this. She can't tell him anything about that. She had told him she was a spy after the war, and he didn't believe her. He thought she was, she was joking, oh, come on, Elise, you couldn't be a spy. But it really happened. And we were talking with Mr. Larry Loftus. The new book is entitled The Princess Spy, The True Story of World War II Spy, Aileen Griffith, Countess of Roman Owens. Mr. Loftus, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me, Charles. Appreciate it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.